Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new talk of Europe after coronavirus, a series of podcasts promoted by OpenEU Debate, a Jambonet sponsor network. My name is Carlos Carnicero Urabayan. I'm a journalist here in Brussels. And today we will be talking about why we need a sustainable recovery and what role the European minimum income can play in that area. What's the impact of this COVID-19 crisis in Europe's sustainability ambitions? Today, we will reflect together on the attitudes of Europeans towards sustainability and what fiscal policies are required to accelerate a fair transition. We have a great mix of contributors joining us from the trade union world, from politics and from academia. Today's guest editor is Ricard Bellera, Secretary for Labor and Economy of the Trade Union Comisiones Obreras Catalonia. Welcome, Ricard, and thanks for helping us prepare today's podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. You're welcome. Let me also introduce you to Ernest Urtasun, member of the European Parliament, where he's part of the group of the Greens European Free Alliance. Welcome, Ernest. Hello. Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining. Uh, last but not least, we have Dr. Sharon Baute, postdoctoral researcher at the Amsterdam University. Welcome. Thank you. So we're done with presentations. Let's get started. Uh, many of us have been amazed at images of nature coming back in full shape in the urban spaces in these months of lockdown. And as many regret that pollution returns with normal life as European economies are taking out of hibernation, the EU keeps discussing a European Green Deal. So, Sharon, let me let me ask you, do you think the pandemic has transformed citizens' attitudes on sustainability? What I think is a really a positive side effect of the COVID-19 lockdown is that it has made the impact of human activity on the climate much more visible. So from pr uh, public opinion research, we already know that Europeans were very much aware of climate change already before the pandemic, whereas they did not really tend to worry so much about the effects. And what we can expect is that awareness about climate change is now being more often translated into stronger concerns about the impact and perhaps stronger motivations to adopt more climate friendly behavior. I'm, of course, curious to see new research on this topic, um, but I think we should also not overestimate a shift in public opinion for two reasons. So first, if there is a shift, it might only be short term. And second, if people are more concerned about the climate change and its impact, that does not necessarily mean that they consider it as a top priority for political action and will change their own behavior because especially for those groups that have been hit the hardest by the pandemic, their mindsets are probably focused on addressing issues that relate to healthcare, employment, social protection, which will all appear more urgent to them. So I think it will require sustained efforts to keep it at the top of the political agenda for the next years. So uh, there's an opportunity, but of course uh, we, we, need to, we need to work on ensuring this, this stays in the agenda. So Ernest, uh, in your opinion, are we all more wary of black swans and, and more ready to accelerate the fight against climate change? Uh, probably knowing we all need to change our habits and what do you think? Uh, I see probably uh, two uh, contradictory trends related to that. On, on the one hand, 
uh, I can see that our public opinions uh, after the, uh, during the COVID and now that we are uh, entering the escalation phase are accepting uh, with uh, with um, with greater normality measures that the municipalities are taking to green the space. So I think that the uh, probably the the period we have been through has shown that having less cars, that having greater uh, um, green areas in our in our cities, having a, a cleaner air, uh, this is something positive. And I, I see lots of municipalities in Europe uh, seizing the opportunity to move forward uh, uh, more green cities. And this is accepted by public opinion more generally. Uh, and that, I think, is positive. On the other hand, I see another trend, um, which is that um, we were supposed uh, to enter uh, at European level, uh, the phase of the Green Deal, uh, where all of our investments and all our um, our, um, our activities will be pushed towards uh, transforming our economy to, uh, to a green uh, in a green way, and of course we have the urgency now to support the economy at any costs. And here I see uh, maybe a less acceptance in putting green conditionalities uh, to certain um, to certain uh, support tools for private companies and for the sectors because supporting the economy and the jobs is a priority. So in a way, I think that um, on the one hand, uh, I think people would like to move into a more green society. But on the other hand, there is I have the fear that we uh, that supporting the economy would come at all costs in the coming weeks. And that is something that that is something that here in the in the Greens at the European Parliament will a bit worried about that some measures of the Green Deal will be a bit delayed because of that. So I, th I see these two contradictory trends going on right now. Uh, Ricard, in your view, are we all more aware of the risk of climate change and more ready to, to embrace the, the, uh, the green recovery? As, as we've seen, uh, nature uh, is, is resilient. That, thing, that means that we have seen in the last weeks how, how nature was returning to our cities. But also human nature is resilient and um, often uh, it comes back to the to the wrong positions. So in the sense, as um, as our, our uh, Belgian colleague said, uh, we are not very op optimistical that there really there will really something done. We are facing different challenges. One of them, the, perhaps the most important, the most immediate one, is uh, climate. But there's also the digital challenge. There's also a demographic challenge. And we should be able just to be conscient about the importance of designing, defining uh, policies to face these challenges. Uh, if we are going to be able to do that, it will depend on the public debate we're going to have the next months and the next years. But we are not very optimistic. But the EU already discussed in the past uh, uh, environmental issues, even a Green New Deal uh, after the Euro crisis, and we didn't see uh, much change. So, Sharon, in, in your view, what, what indicates uh, now that this time is the real time? The context is different now. So, besides the green aspect, the EU is also paying more attention to the social dimension with the European pillar of social rights and the just transition mechanism that is built into the Green Deal to support those citizens that are most affected by the transition towards the green economy. For instance, by providing access to retraining programs and employment opportunities into new economic sectors. 
we know from uh, previous studies that there's quite strong support for social initiatives at the European level. So I think that if the EU is taking further action on the fight against climate change, especially now, we should not lose sight of social principles of justice and redistribution. So many people are experiencing economic insecurity right now, and I think it will be very, very hard, if not impossible, to implement a Green Deal without a strong social component attached to it. You cannot mobilize people for a policy that threatens more jobs without offering a realistic and a concrete perspective on better quality of life. So I believe that the social component is really a key factor for the success of the Green Deal. Ernest, I think probably you agree, but before uh, this crazy pandemic started, we were talking about a fair transition and we were emphasizing the need to ensure that no one is, is, is being left behind. So probably after COVID, this is even more important and even more challenging as well. No, absolutely. Uh, when we talked about the, the Green Deal, uh, we were uh, not uh, talking only about the need to move uh, towards a, a green transition. That has also a very strong social component. You cannot have a green deal if you do not talk redistribution of wealth, you do not talk reinforcing our social systems, you do not talk about taxation. There is no green deal without uh, a deep reform of taxation of the EU. So uh, this goes hand in hand. Uh, I think that the challenge that we are facing right now is uh, when we will enter the phase of the recovery, uh, how uh, to combine both goals and not uh, leave one or the other aside. And this is going to be extremely important. And there are, as I said before, there are, there are things that, 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 um, that are worrying in the sense that um, I think supporting the economy is necessary. We, will, we are going to throw billions and billions of euros into our economy. But uh, and uh, for instance, the, 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 the funds that have been mobilized at national level account for uh, uh, 2.3 trillion already. So it's huge. And what we see at the moment and th th that worries us a lot is that all these interventions are, are coming with no conditionality. So we are, I'm afraid that we are already using the resources that uh, are needed for the green transition, but not really uh, conditioning this uh, this this help, this economic help. Uh, to, uh, uh, to environmental goals. And that, that, that worries us a, a bit. So I think that there is social needs, very urgent social needs. And uh, we need to secure rents. We need to secure uh, uh, income, uh, the, the income of people. We need to secure jobs and activity. But that needs to be done already, trying to push the economy towards, uh, towards a green transition. And unfortunately, this is not being done at the national level, I'm talking, because we are now at the phase where Mainly all these investments are done at national level. Another thing will be the European Recovery Fund, where here I think there is a more strong political will of really having a green component of it. Ricard, I wanted to ask you an area you know well, uh, it's about industrial policy. And, and do you think we sh the EU should encourage a reindustrialization policy that maybe repatriates investments to the EU? Is this something feasible? Is this something, is it, is it a good idea even? That's a, that's a good question <laughs> in any case. Um, the Executive Committee of the European Trade Union Confederation has adopted last week a resolution on, on European green, uh, green initiatives. And uh, this, re this resolution calls the Commission to put in place, as uh, Ernest was suggesting, all necessary measures to recover from the social and economic damages caused by COVID-19, but to also use the green stimulus package 
as a leverage to step up its fight against climate change. Industrial policy and the European industrial strategy is part of it. Um, as we have seen in the last uh, last week, uh, Macron is, is announcing that uh, they are going to invest the 8 billion in the French car industry. But of course, we need to remember that there are 900,000 people uh, employed direct or, or indire indirectly in the car industry. But at the same time, uh, in France, we have this 8 billion that are going to be invested in the car industry and in Barcelona at the same moment, another enterprise of the same enterprise of the same group at the, the Nissan uh, car industry is going to close a, a factory which employs indirectly 25,000 persons and that is still producing electrical vehicles. So this is a real crazy thing. So we are, there, there's a renationalization, there's the appeal of Mr. Macron to uh, industrial sovereignty. And we should be sovereign industrially, but probably at the European level. Now, the question is how can we guarantee, how we can make, how we can make sure that there's real a European industrial policy and that the crisis and the answer to the crisis is not going to reinforce the capacity of certain bigger countries, stronger countries to define the technology, to define the future sectors. So um, for this reason, we need strong policies to guarantee a just transition, a just transition in the industrial sense, in the climate sense, in the demographic sense, and also uh, in the sense of a sustainable European project. And that means respecting social needs. And that means for us as unionists, uh, to guarantee quality of employment for each European citizen. All right, so the economic impact of the lockdown shows that rapid action on CO2 reduction has a significant, significant cost. Recently, the, the ministers of labor relations of Italy, Portugal, and Spain launched a, a call for European minimal income as part of the recovery plan. So, Ernest, could we say that citizens should be compensated to, to stay home for the climate and in general adopt a more sustainable way of life? Well, I think that uh, in a way, um, what, what happened in Spain uh, is uh, the result of uh, years and years of denouncing that Spain had not a coherent system of supporting minimum income. I mean, uh, just only for people to know, but uh, we had different systems of minimum income uh, in the in the Spanish regions, but that was very divergent. And now we will have one for the for the for the country. That was extremely important uh, because this will allow to take out of poverty hundred hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, of citizens. I want to remind as well that um, we do have uh, uh, for many years now a proposal to set up uh, a common framework for uh, at European level for minimum income. Uh, and we know that the Commission is working on it. We from the Parliament are pushing to try to have an initiative like that also at the European level. And I think this has to be a very uh, an extremely important component of the um, of the recovery. I mean, we need if we want to build this green deal, and as we said before, this is extremely linked to uh, to building a more social just a more social uh, uh, just society. 
we do need this framework uh, at, at European level. So how does that relate uh, with, uh, uh, with the Green Deal? Well, I think it, it very clearly uh, shows that it's very difficult to have an ecological transition if you don't have everybody on board, if, you don't, if people do not have the feeling that this transition, in a way, uh, uh, is helping their daily lives. And that is why I think the social component of the Green Deal is extremely, it's extremely important. So, of course, the Just Transition Fund is the measure that directly relates to the transition because we will be supporting people directly affected in terms of jobs with that. But of course, having a system of, of minimum, minimum income supporting the, the families that are completely excluded uh, is extremely important. Also to know because that minimum income, uh, well, there's a lot of people saying, well, if you transfer money uh, directly to the citizens, they will stop looking for a job. It's the other way around. We know uh, in, our, in our experience that people who live in poverty, who are excluded, have no chance at all in reintegrating the labor market. And these measures, these kind of measures are uh, particularly intended to help people reintegrate themselves uh, in, in society and finding and finding jobs. So I think indeed the social component of the Green New Deal is important and that that kind of measures I think that we need to we need to start uh, developing as much as possible. Inter interesting because it's not so common to talk about the the minimum income at EU level and connecting connecting it to the sustainability effort. So Sharon, as as this 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 system connecting both elements does not exist yet, how this could work? Well, there are very different policy instruments that could be used to address the social impact of the pandemic and climate change. Most European countries have some form of guaranteed minimum income, which is does a, an, a means-tested benefit. So it can be seen as the last resort social safety net. And its main purpose, as we discussed, is to reduce poverty, to ensure that everyone can live in dignity. And in this sense, it's, for instance, very different from a basic income, which is an unconditional benefit to all citizens. Um, I believe that European standards for minimum income can really make us better prepared for external challenges to our welfare systems, such as climate change, but also other uh, transformations. Although initially minimum income is not intended to compensate climate unemployment, unless people would become long-term unemployed and fall out the benefit scheme. But you could indeed debate whether unemployment due to climate policy should be compensated differently to ensure that people can enter new sectors if needed. And here, as we discussed, the Just Transition Fund can play an extremely important role. And this whole development, it forces us to think differently about unemployment and about the balance between individual and government responsibility. After all, it's not only an instrument of social justice, but also an economic instrument to protect consumption in local economies. Uh, Ricard, would a measure of this kind not be too dependent on a short-term policy opportunity window instead of encourage real sustainable transformation in the primary economic activity? What's your take on this? No, we are, we are really very happy about uh, this initiative of the Spanish government uh, the main trade unions in Spain, um, if I remember well, it was January 2017 when they presented a popular legislative initiative to create uh, such a minimum income. So for us, it's absolutely necessary, uh, as we've seen in this crisis, but also in, in, in the case of Spain in the previous crisis. 
Um, in this sense, the initiative of the Spanish government uh, is, is a very important step forward. The minimum income also at European level must be compatible, of, of course, also with the respect for fundamental rights. It's not one thing or the other. <laughs> we need both things together. And that means fundamental rights as access to education, to emancipation of our youngsters, to have a decent job, to have a decent pension, affordable housing. So it's not about getting a piece of wealth, but to guarantee social justice and, and social cohesion, especially when we are speaking about transitions, transitions in the, in the demographic framework, in the climate framework, in the technological framework. So um, just uh, thinking about, about the, the, the climate transition, of course, we need to make sure the people in, 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 in specific sectors that are most affected or specific regions have a support and have a guarantee that they're going to, to have an income just to, to, to maintain their, their stability. So um, let me ask you a question to, to all three of you. Um, as, as Ricard was saying, there's a, there's a new measure in Spain that there are so many expectations and, and so on. And there are other systems at other uh, European member states. And some may say, well, this looks, this works well. Why does the EU need to enter in this area? What is the need for having a minimal income seam at EU level? Disparities are too big. So why do we need an EU level system? Who wants to start with this? Uh, I, I can just maybe say that um, uh, as, as in many other policy area fields, uh, it's, uh, I don't think the EU needs to uh, establish uh, a set in stone how a minimum income should work everywhere. Uh, but I think a, a, a framework directive uh, defining um, um, what the minimum income should look like or general principles that that would help. I think that um, what the EU could do is setting a minimum standards that need to be respected by, uh, by, by all EU members. So for instance, yes, I would uh, like the EU to have a directive that would oblige every single member state to to have one scheme like this with certain parameters then of course it would be uh, uh, up to every uh, any every member state to to see the level of the subsidy the the functionalities uh, who is entitled to get it that of course because we are living in different economies and and different gdp per capita and of course this would need to be adapted but having a, a common new framework that obliges every single member state to have policies fighting poverty, I think this is something that the EU should be doing. And I think that there is for years uh, a document from the Economic and Social Committee at European level proposing that, which I think has been circulating now for, for a long time, that I think that Commission, that the European Commission should, should size to present such an initiative. And I think that the Parliament would welcome that very much. All right, Sharon, so probably you agree that one size fits all wouldn't work at EU level. So uh, do you agree? Yes, um, I think it's a very good idea to make it a, a relative uh, indicator. For instance, uh, if the EU could develop a minimum standard relative to the mean national income, let's say 60% of national mean equivalent disposable incomes, which are commonly used as a threshold for being at risk of poverty. So by using a relative indicator of poverty, it already allows the level of the benefit to vary across member states. And I think this, this completely fits into the wider debate on what 
what is the EU's responsibility for the living standards of its citizens. And the EU has set a very powerful signal in its uh, European pillar of social rights by including it um, as one of the top priorities to ensure that um, all citizens should be uh, covered, that there should be adequate minimum income uh, benefits provided to lift people out of poverty. So, Ricard, why why we should do this at the European level if we've seen like in countries like in Spain, there are these kind of measures being approved already? Um, I, I agree with what was said by, by Sharon and by Ernest. Uh, of course, we, we need to have a certain security. If we are really going to enter uh, a transition um, that is going to have deep consequences for some sectors and some, some persons, we need, we need to make sure that nobody is left uh, behind. So in this sense, it, it makes sense to have a European initiative because in Europe, everything is, is linked. Just let me um, uh, say something uh, we, we haven't commented. And this about, uh, it's of course important to have a European minimum uh, income, but we should also think about the other two, <laughs> the other two um, axes, uh, which are important for, for guaranteeing um, income of, of, of uh, people. That means the right to have uh, decent work, and the right to have decent unemployment benefits. And I think the debate about the European minimum income should go in parallel with the debate about the European system to guarantee unemployment benefits, because the labor market is also linked in this, uh, in this economic and monetary union. Okay, so We've talked about the minimal income at EU level. Let's let's now look at how this could happen and what are the obstacles that that we we may face to see this happening in the in the shorter or medium term. So I think Ernest, you talked before about fiscal and 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 tax reform linked to this measure being adopted. So perhaps you can explain us a bit more why we need a, a fiscal and and tax reform. Why is that important to to uh, uh, to, to see a minimum income happening at the EU level? Well, I think in general, uh, when we discuss the Green Deal, we indeed uh, have been uh, saying that we need uh, to make it successful, uh, an important reform of the taxation system at the EU level. We still have uh, an economy that works with uh, an integrated single market with a common currency, but with, uh, with uh, 27 tax taxation systems that compete to each other with very few harmonization yet, unfortunately. Uh, so there are several initiatives on the table. Uh, we, the parliament has already adopted the establishment, for instance, of a minimum uh, a consolidated uh, common uh, base for the, for the corporate taxation. This is already in, uh, yeah, it's blocking the council, but it has already been, uh, been approved. Uh, there are talks, of course, uh, and we support that of establishing a minimum taxation rate at EU level for corporates, which I think would be extremely important to fight uh, 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 tax dumping at EU level. Uh, and then, of course, there is all the new own resources that the EU should develop. And there are lots of talks lately about that because it, it, it's supposed to be part of the of the reimbursement of the common debt that we are going to be to issue to fund the recovery. Uh, with this, with the European Recovery Plan, which is the digital taxation, which is the taxation on plastics, uh, and which is also maybe the introduction of a new taxation for be, uh, a new tax for big companies. So 
I think that uh, moving into an integrated taxation system at European level is an important important component of the Green Deal. So Sharon, do you agree with that? Is, is an integrated taxation system a key pillar of the, of the new deal, of the Green Deal? Well, I think when it comes to European minimum income in particularly, I think that it could be it could have both a regulative and a redistributive component at the country level. Um, so there could be redistribution attached to it when we develop this at European level. And this, this could be uh, an additional rationale for doing this precisely at the EU level, um, because if we have a binding framework on minimum income, this would require very unequal efforts for our different member states. Um, minimum incomes in the Netherlands are much more generous than, for instance, in Hungary. And the financial costs to close the poverty gap um, would be largest in eastern and southern member states. That, that's just a fact. So one of the ways to compensate these countries for this in unequal burden which could, would make it easier to achieve our goal of minimum income at EU level is really to rely on European solidarity to finance it. And of course, this makes it much more controversial than a European framework that is only regulatory of nature and that does not include any transfer between the member states. So I think there could be some uh, debate about um, how should we finance uh, this framework? Should there be country redistribution? To what extent and to what, um, in what way can this help us really to achieve the uh, European standards for minimum income? Ricardo, would you like to react to that? Yes, I, I agree with what Sharon was, was saying. Um, we see it perhaps in the South, we see it uh, with a little bit different, but. But in the same in the same way, the the, the outdoor is exactly the the, the same. Uh, what we have seen here, uh, because I give you an example, the the Spanish uh, public debt uh, 2008 was at 38 percent, and now we're going to have uh, after this new crisis, we're going to have 113 percent, and uh, we have paid for it with our wages, with the quality of our public system, so. What we, what we probably need is an approach that is not based on moral national concepts, but it's based on, on responsibility of firms, of responsibility of, um, of political decisions, and also, of course, of, of persons. Crisis, we have discovered, is, is a redistribution phenomenon where the poor get poorer and the rich <laughs> get richer. And this works on a national basis, but it works also at the European level as we've seen with the financial crisis 2008. So uh, if we, it, it's, it's a chain, because if we, if we take a look at the COVID crisis, uh, as a result of the measures taken in the crisis before, the poorer countries have now worse public services to the, due to the financial cuts in the past, and they also had a slower response to the impact of COVID. And now, facing the recovery plans, we have less investment in social protection, and, but we also have less investment in education, training, innovation, or industrial policies. That means that perhaps um, we shouldn't be so obsessed about what a country is, what a state is, and what a nationality is. And we should be more obsessed about what are the rights of people and how we can reinforce these rights, just to make, from the perspective of solidarity and cooperation that Sharon was speaking about, that from this perspective, we, we really 
jump over over our um, uh, that we just uh, jump forward and and develop a system where it's not about countries, but it's more about uh, work, about uh, social protection, about education uh, at the European level. So more more obsession about the rights of the people. I mean, th this sounds this sounds good to me, but I wonder what's the appetite in EU citizens for. Uh, for the minimal income. And I know, Sharon, you've been doing some research recently about this. And I wanted to ask you about what are the, 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 the public, uh, what's the public support for this measure? And I, I guess it depends on the how rich that country is in the EU, how what's the level of social protection in that country? Is that the case? Well, I see two important factors that shape the political context. So first, there is momentum to proceed with an ambitious social agenda. In this time of crisis, with high levels of economic insecurity, solidarity is really at the center of debate. So it's time for strong leadership to take care of the basic needs of the most vulnerable population. A second factor is indeed the public support. And in a recent study, we analyzed public opinion in 18 EU member states towards an EU level initiative on minimum income protection. So what we did is we measured the attitudes towards a social benefit targeted at the poor on which the level would depend on the cost of living in each member state and with transfers from rich to less affluent countries. And basically we found that people really look at European integration process from a national perspective. So in the south and in the east of Europe, there we see that people put high hopes in these EU level policies they expect that integration will result in social progress and precisely because of their social aspirations, we observed incredibly high levels of support for an EU level um, minimum income benefits in these countries. In the North and the West, the story is different. Their support is lower and this is partly explained because people are more concerned and they have more negative expectations about how further European integration will affect their welfare systems. So the study shows that there is some sensitivity also about the transfers between countries, about the diversity of uh, national welfare systems, and that can really stir the European debate. But based on opinion research, my impression is that political leaders are often a bit more hesitant about European solidarity than their population is. Uh, Ernest, do you see that? Do you see those dynamics being reflected in the European Parliament in the different groups, and and of course, depending on where those MEPs are from? Well, in, indeed, when we talk the social issues, uh, there are um, national divergences that are expressed very very clearly because we that we have different traditions of our social model and and, and getting into a into integrating social, uh, the social dimension at the EU level is not always something easy. Uh, for instance, uh, this is uh, uh, something that is very uh, clearly shown in the debates about the minimum wage. Uh, uh, there are, there are uh, very progressive members in the parliament and also unions, maybe Regara can also say a word about that, who absolutely do not want a, a framework of a minimum wage at the at European level because uh, they think that would be more harmful to them than beneficial. Um, so yes, indeed, the, the, those regionals, uh, the, the divergences uh, do exist, but I think that there is a, a general political agreement that it is time for the EU uh, to be uh, at, uh, at, its, uh, at its highest possibility in developing and protecting 
the European social model. That, 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 of course, I think everybody stands really behind the so-called European pillar of social rights. And uh, all, these, all these initiatives, the Commission knows that any initiatives to, to reinforce the European pillar of social rights is going to be welcomed here in the Parliament. I mean, we, we're going to be, the institution is going to be the strongest ally for that. I think the problem is, as usual, will come more on the side of the Council. Uh, but yeah, indeed, then in the discussion in different uh, files, you could see that there are uh, the very clearly divergences, and sometimes it's not something between the left and the right, it, between the progressive forces, we have strong debates as well on different and on different angles. So that's that's also true. So so Ricard, let me let me ask you about what Ernest just said. I, we have uh, unions in Europe against this kind of measure. So I guess I want to ask you how would you how would you convince them or how would you feel how do you feel about that the fact that other uh, fellow trade unionists are not supporting this this uh, proposal. Um, I've I've read Sharon's um, study, uh, which is very very interesting, and of course we experience this kind of differences also uh, in the European Trade Union Confederation. Of course, if somebody uh, works in Sweden and has a lot of rights and it has also expectation that if some something goes wrong, he's going to have a social net and the uh, a public net is going to to help him or her, um, of course, they are afraid about losing that. And of course, people in the South, they're just expecting to have something similar to what the Swedish people have. So this is something we are, we are managing at the European Trade Union Confederation. And uh, I think the work we are doing is very important we, we, because we represent 45 million of workers. And that means that if there's a consent uh, among uh, very, very different uh, countries and, and very different sectors, that means that there is also an opportunity and we should build on this opportunity. That we should remember something that's very important. Uh, Europe can't, can have only an identity that is based on social rights. We don't have a common history in the sense that, that it's really something, not the, Europe, the Roman Empire, not... Uh, so we need to have, the only thing we can identify is in our social rights. And these social rights need to be the same and should need to be exactly uh, granted in the same way for somebody in Portugal or somebody in Estonia or somebody in Sweden. And this is, a, this is about, uh, we are speaking about just transition. Also the transition to Europe needs to be a just transition because if not, we're going to have a problem with this European project. And uh, avoiding this problem means also to have tools, to have um, to, to just uh, construct, to build a, this uh, social uh, union we need. And one of them that uh, Ernest was speaking about uh, was that it makes no sense to have only a European and monetary union. We need a fiscal union because the internal market is not an end in itself. It's a tool and it's a tool in the service of a social Europe. Let me ask you a question because in the last few years we've seen quite an amount of people voting for anti-european political parties and populism has grown so much over the last year so i wonder whether there's there can be a link between uh reinforcing social europe and fighting populism is there do these things go together ernest maybe you you can you can react to you can start by reacting to this what do you think well, I, I think in a way that, uh, of course, one, one could, made a, uh, could make a link 
between the rising of the far right and uh, the lately impoverishment of uh, of the middle class in Western Europe. Uh, uh, I think this one, of course, could make a link related to that. And uh, I think that the more we build uh, 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 societies that are cohesion, when everybody has a chance, uh, the, the the least uh, our uh, our political systems will be affected by by extreme right forces. I think this is uh, this is very clear. So I I think in a way that. Uh, that uh, the, the emergency of the far right uh, in the last years, it's very clearly uh, related to the, the very difficult consequences of the last uh, financial crisis. So I think, yes, indeed, if we want to save our European model uh, and our European democracies, uh, this has to be extremely linked to preserving our social system. And, uh, and that, I think, is something that the, the, the central parties ha have not been uh, uh, really aware in the last years, but I think the mood is changing now. And I, I, I feel in the majority of uh, national governments that, uh, that, that, that this needs to be changed. And, and, and you could see, when you see the, um, the Franco-German agreement for the recovery fund, uh, one could sense that uh, uh, the big governments in Europe want to do things differently as they did uh, in the austeritarian times uh, that, that came after the, the, the crisis in 2008. So I think that some change here is, uh, is, is happening, and I think this is extremely positive. Sharon, so we, we, we uh, social Europe uh, to take Europe out of the hands of those that want to dismantle the EU project? Well, I think that the EU can really take this uh, framework for a minimum income as a great opportunity to raise its profile as a provider of social protection and not just as an amplifier of globalization trends. And what we also see in our study is very hopeful because the people that often are uh, found to be the mo most Eurosceptic, such as low income people, uh, people on low education, um, those depending on the welfare state, these are precisely the ones who are the most in favor of such an EU initiative on minimum income benefits. So I think it can be a great opportunity to rebuild trust among this particularly this particular group in society who may have feel, felt left behind by the European projects before. So, Ricard, do you think this uh, a more social Europe will help will help the EU gain more support from uh, EU citizens? Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced. Um, we, we need it's the only way to to have a, a certain identification. Um, it's true, what I've seen in Europe, every far right is different. So in, in Spain, it's not, not especially workers who are voting uh, the far right. In other countries, it's like this. In Spain, no, but, it, but what is really true is that, it, and Sigmund Bauman was writing a, a lot about this, that it's, it's the fear against globalization, it's a fear about technolog technological change, it's a fear about um, uh, climate change and what it will bring with it. So there are a lot of fears that need to be resolved with, with, with strong expectations, with a certain hope. And this hope will come only if we have a strong Europe defending uh, social policies and common social policies. And that's exactly what it is about. And that's a principal challenge. And of course, we are facing a lot of challenges at the same time. But perhaps the key is this European social concept. Right. Thank you, Ricard. And I think we are slowly coming to an end. I think we touched on perhaps the most relevant question on what to expect from Europe in the post-corona world. 
a real green recovery that leaves no one behind. So we've given a few ideas on how that can be done. And we've also covered the biggest obstacles uh, that path may have. So I want to thank our three guests, Ricard Velera, Ernest Urtasun, and Sharon Baute. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was all for now. Uh, Europe After Corona is a series of podcasts promoted by OpenEU Debate and produced by Agenda Publica. We will continue this conversation very soon because, yes, these lockdown days are finally coming to an end and we better be ready with answers on what's coming next. Stay tuned.